All right, well, uh, our text this morning, if you've read ahead, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. When you read it all together, it, it's quite troubling what happens to Peter. I mean, it's, it's amazing, and then it's like, it's all over, okay? And uh, so I wrote in here our thoughts, are they from heaven or are they from hell? How does one tell? Well, Jesus knows, Jesus knows. So. Let's read our text, Matthew 16, uh, verse 21 to 23. So remember the context. Jesus said, um, and you guys, we do stand up when we read the word. Why do I got to remind you every Sunday? I mean, come on. (laughs) Yeah, so the context, uh, we know that we're at uh, Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes the boys aside and he, he says, hey, what are people saying about me, the son of man. And there, the crowds, the people are just all over the map. Jesus could have been anybody to the people. And, but then Jesus looked to them and he said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter's shining moment, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven revealed this to you. So that was great until now. And it was from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of God. Of men. Father, we can probably go to similar extremes with the things, the ideas that come to our head, and we're a mess, Lord, and we, we need you to clear it up for us, and we need you to do that by your word. So I pray, Lord, that you would use this short little section to inform us, to warn us, to get us further in line with you, your heart, your will, Lord. And um, yeah, Lord, I pray again that you would be with Elaine as she grieves and processes all that's happened and what life will look like from now on. And Lord, she's a woman of faith. And, uh, and I know, Lord, that in your faithfulness, you'll just walk with her and see her through it. We pray for Calvary Chapel Kelso, Longview, that you would just continue through Pastor Nat to shepherd, to teach and equip them. And um, yeah, just watch after them, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. So from that time, from the time of this great confession of Peter, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. So now that Jesus's identity uh, among the apostles has been, you know, settled, it's, it's confirmed, it's time to let them in on the major detail of his mission, the biggie, okay? His mission, of course, has been stated and, um, or somewhat stated, certainly been implied before now at various times and in various ways, but he's never explicitly tied his mission 
to his death and resurrection, or that his mission is only possible by means of suffering and death and resurrection. It's never been discussed that everything hinges, it, 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 it absolutely depends on these things. You know, when the angel announced to Joseph that Mary would conceive by the Holy Spirit and that she would be having a male child, the angel commanded Joseph saying, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. Well, that is a, a great statement and, and that provides great hope, but nothing was said about how Jesus would save his people from their sins, just that he would. But now, after almost three years of ministry, he's showing his disciples that, not that he, he could by chance, by being in Jerusalem during the Passover, suffer and die, but that he must go to Jerusalem, and that he must suffer many things, that he must be killed, and he must rise the third day all in order to fulfill his mission. These things undergird everything he's taught, everything that he's done up to this point, and it will make possible everything he intends to do himself and through his apostles and the church for the rest of time moving forward. His suffering, death, and resurrection, understand, are not you know, one means among many by which he could possibly save humanity and fulfill his mission. You know, Jesus, he didn't come up with this halfway through his ministry because it was the only way going forward with all that's happened. Okay, there was no multiple choice where A, B, C were all, you know, sort of viable ways to accomplish this mission, depending on how things played out. It wasn't a, you know, a choose your own adventure, right, kind of story. Have you guys done those? If you haven't, you don't know what that is. I don't have time to explain it to you. And there actually has been uh, this false notion among certain, uh, we might say, school of, schools of theology uh, that suffering, death, and resurrection was plan B because plan A didn't work out. Okay, you should laugh when I say that because it's absolutely ludicrous. In God's providence and foresight, there's no such thing as plan B. God made this particular decree before the creation of the world Okay? that God would come in the flesh and that he would redeem man by means of suffering, death, and resurrection. You know, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, makes it very clear that this was all planned in advance, saying that Jesus, the lamb, was slain before the foundation of the, the world. It's all planned. Jesus was a dead man walking. Okay? As soon as he came in the flesh, his death was already planned out. So when Jesus said that this must happen, okay? It must, because it was pre-planned, foreordained as the method of reconciling the world to himself. It is by these means that all of God's redemptive benefits can be distributed to mankind. Without them, he, has to, he would have to withhold, because God is just in his nature, amen? And until justice is satisfied against sin and wickedness, he cannot distribute those things. So only by these can sin be put out of God's sight. Can man be forgiven, be justified, born again, adopted into the family of God, receive eternal life? Without it, man is just completely lost. So Jesus must do this if anyone is to be saved. 
And I'm sure that you've heard people object to this idea that that must be the only way for people to be saved. Yeah, well, heaven is not like a house with many doors, okay? You know, for security purposes, there's only one entrance. And that entrance, as the scriptures say, is the body of Christ, which whom rather suffered, died, and rose again to actually frame in that door to create access. And some would insist that this is narrow and it's exclusive to which we must respond with a resounding yes. It is absolutely exclusive. But they'll say, no, there must be more than one way. And when people say this, you know, it, it, it is a really interesting statement that they may or may not have weighed in their minds. But if there is another way, Jesus is a liar, that he didn't really have to suffer, die, and rise again. Also, it diminishes God's will to a cruel and unnecessary demand. It makes light of what Jesus had to endure in order to save us and reconcile us to God. And, and, and if, if, if you've missed it, please understand, this is a satanic attack on God that distracts humanity from what they desperately need. Instead of you know, complaining that there is only one way to heaven, we should be rejoicing that there is a way. You know, if someone discovered the one and only cure for AIDS, no one with AIDS would complain that there was only one cure. And they wouldn't hold out for another cure because in their mind it's just too narrow and bigoted to have just one cure. No, they would rejoice and they would be grateful that there was a cure, right? Well, there's only one cure for the disease of sin, and it is the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. It was a must that he go to the cross, and it's a must that we, we trust him to be saved. But this abrupt news of suffering many things, dying and rising again, it was a little more than Peter could handle. So Peter, he takes Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. So, you know, in the mind of Peter, it made no sense that the Christ the son of the living God should suffer and die. It just made no sense to him. It was offensive to him. You know, when Jesus originally called Peter, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, Matthew 4.18. Well, that's what Peter thought he was signing up for, not this dead Messiah business. But you see, Jesus couldn't make Peter a fisher of men until Jesus died for those men. There's no acquiring subjects for the kingdom unless those subjects are born again through the death of Christ. Peter wasn't okay with this. You know, this last Thursday night, uh, as, as, as we're going through Isaiah 45 here, God predicted that his people, Judas specifically, would complain in the future that he would dare use a pagan king to deliver them from captivity. The people of God complained to God about the methods of God. And so here we see Peter doing something very similar, but here he's outright objecting to God's redemptive method. It's really silly. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, and you're just wrong. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Isn't that comical that Peter would object and even tell Jesus no, and then refer to him as Lord? No and Lord, they don't belong together in this context. Servants do not tell their masters what they will and will not do. But something more nefarious is going on here besides Peter's ignorance. 
But Jesus turned aside and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. What just happened? The text says that Jesus was speaking to Peter and rebuking him for advancing this satanic thought of keeping Jesus from suffering and death. It was satanic to keep Jesus from suffering and death. And Jesus says that Satan was an offense to him, literally a stumbling block in his path to hinder him from fulfilling his mission. Satan's thoughts that came out in Peter's words were meant to thwart the will of God for Christ and the rest of humanity. And though the thought originated with Satan, Jesus held Peter accountable for it. Bummer. So a couple things I, I think are important to talk about this. And there are so many things we could talk about in this passage of scripture. Some of the things that we need to be aware of, if you didn't know by now, Satan is the most cunning of all of God's creatures. Okay? Something that I think people fail to see is that Satan does not want Jesus to go to the cross. Too many people think he was assisting this, that he wanted Jesus on the cross. No, he knew what was, a, what was in store through the cross better than anybody else. Okay? Something else is not every thought that comes to our minds comes from our minds. And as we may not be responsible for every thought that comes to mind, we're always responsible for what comes out of our mouth. Okay? So let's look at the first one regarding Satan's cunning. It's Genesis 3.1 that says that the serpent was the most cunning of all the beasts of the field. Okay? And we know that the serpent was essentially possessed by Satan, as Jesus indicates in the Gospels, saying that he's been a liar from the beginning and the father of lies. And being cunning, as with the story of Adam and Eve, specifically with Eve, Satan looks for the opportune time to strike. He studies our weaknesses and then he pounces when we are vulnerable. And that is why he came to Jesus in Matthew 4 in the wilderness. He was tempting Jesus with food and other things, but it was after Jesus had gone 40 days without food. How strong would you be? I'm not strong around food after three hours, okay? And then he presented things to Jesus that were rightfully his, like bread and glory and dominion of the earth, but Jesus wasn't to receive those things from Satan's hand. He was to receive those from his father by way of the cross. The whole temptation in the wilderness was intended to steer Jesus from the cross, to create a bogus shortcut to obtaining all that was rightfully his. And remember, Satan said, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. I'll give it all to you because currently it is mine and I'll give it to you. Just worship me. But it was there in the wilderness that Jesus initially bested the devil. He didn't take the bait, but walked out of the desert in victory. But it was after Jesus endured temptation in the wilderness and he was victorious, the Holy Spirit informs us that Satan left Jesus for a more opportune time. That's an indication that we should expect him to come back into the narrative, okay? And that's, it's right here where he's come in. Alfred, Alfred Plummer says, in Peter, the banished Satan had once more returned. He's back. So Satan, the most cunning of foes, used Peter, whom Jesus loved, to hinder Jesus' objective. 
F.F. Bruce says, none are more formidable instruments of temptation than well-meaning friends who care more for our comfort than for our character. Satan knew that the best way to get to Jesus was through Peter, this friend, this disciple. But to what end? Why would Satan do this? Well, we've already said it. It was to keep Jesus away from the cross. If, if he can keep Jesus from the cross, Satan can keep his job and he can keep humanity out of heaven. His ultimate goal, of course, was to keep Jesus away from Calvary. Now, when I say that, I, I know people go, what? Calvary is the hill that Jesus was crucified on. It, Calvary is, is, comes from the Latin that means skull or cranium. It was the hill where the skulls of dead men were scattered everywhere because it was a hill of death, of exec- execution. So we are skull chapel. We're cranium chapel. You see, what Jesus would do at Calvary would ultimately reverse the damage that Satan did in Genesis chapter 3, and it would eventually bring Satan to his ruin. Remember Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that this pronouncement from God that the son of the woman, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. Oh, it's coming. (laughs) It's coming. Jesus' work in redemption, it initially shamed the devil and his minions. Paul says that through Jesus' passion, he disarmed principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, Colossians 2.15. He used the cross to bring them before the public and just make fun of them. Good try, but I win. You put forth some, some good effort there in the wilderness and with Peter and everything else, but you failed. You failed. He, he made a public spectacle of them. And so Jesus' death, his resurrection, was just part one in dismantling Satan's dominion over the earth and those who dwell on it, who he's blinded. But just because this was Satan's cunning, Peter wasn't off the hook. You guys have heard people say, well, the devil made me do it. Jesus would never say that, okay? And he would never say, the devil made you do it, okay? Satan didn't take control of Peter's mind and mouth. He capitalized on Peter's affection for Jesus, but he didn't force Peter to do it. Of course, Peter didn't want Jesus to suffer, okay? He didn't want him to die. Satan knew that about Peter, so he inspired Peter to take a stand against what God had planned, I mean, who doesn't want to protect Jesus? But how many of us understand that it's Jesus that doesn't need our protection, okay? It sounds like a good idea, but it was satanic. And so this story, I think, brings up some important issues. As I mentioned, not every thought that comes to your mind necessarily came from your mind. How many of you have had a thought where you go, where'd that come from? I mean, I'm a little dark and morbid at times, but that was over the top, okay? I can think twisted things, but that was completely contorted. It was, it, was, it was a bit much, okay? Some of the thoughts we've had may not have originated from our minds, but may have come from the mind of our enemy, just as it was for Peter in our story. We must be cautious about thoughts inspired elsewhere, okay? And because our thoughts can be corrupt, and because our thoughts can be further corrupted by our enemy, not every thought that comes to mind should exit our mouth right? It should be examined. Our own thoughts should be examined. But here it demonstrates that thoughts planted in the mind from Satan can come out of the mouth. And it's not a good look, okay? It's not. If the thought comes from a dark influence, it most certainly should not come out of our mouths. 
it should be taken captive and it should be made subject to Christ. Okay? We may not be accountable for some of the thoughts that come to mind, but we will be held responsible for what we say, whether it was an original thought or one that was influenced. Jesus said that on the day of judgment, all people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Now, we would love it if he said they will be held account for every, you know, of, for every of the most wicked possible words. But Jesus says, careless words they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew chapter 12, 36 through 37. Later on, because Peter learned his lesson, he said that if anyone speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is, if you are to say something, say what is consistent with the word of God, 1 Peter 4, 11. And so I think this also leads into another important thing to consider, because here in what seems to be the matter of seconds or maybe minutes, Peter goes from receiving thoughts from heaven about the identity of Christ to receiving thoughts from hell to hinder Christ. Whew. I mean, give me a couple hours before you do that. But this is like back to back. He receives revelation from the Father, and then he receives something satanic from the devil. One thought from the Father of lights, and another came from the Father of lies. That is crazy. Earlier, he was completely mindful of the things of God when he rightfully declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he was immediately mindful of the things of man as his thoughts were inspired by Satan. One thought was celebrated, and the other was absolutely condemned. So our thoughts, are they thoughts from heaven, or are they thoughts from hell? How is one to tell? How is one to test or know their thoughts so they don't do what Peter did? Did you love it that Peter is always an example of what not to do? For that, we are grateful, aren't we? Peter had a lot to teach. <laughs> but what a dreadful thing to be the mouthpiece of God in one breath and then to be the mouthpiece of Satan in another. Peter goes from the rock upon which Jesus would build his church to being a rock placed in front of Jesus so that he would trip along the path. That is nuts. How do we avoid such error? How do we think well and then that we might speak well? First, Paul says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The word prove there means to test, to test. So Satan is currently the God of this world, but you've noticed, right? And currently the whole world, John says, is under the sway of the wicked one, of his influence. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and 1 John 5.19. So any conformity to this world is to have our thoughts, our actions, and our values rooted in what Satan has influenced. It's rooted in what his values are. So the mind, once it is redeemed through faith in Christ, it must undergo a thorough cleansing renewing, it must have a full reboot, amen, so that it might test and discern the good and perfect will of God against the lies of the devil. Is, do, do the lies of the devil seem to be more evident than ever for those of you that are like more advanced in years? It seems to be that way. <laughs> the only sure way to know the will of God is to know the word of God, to have a growing, working 
knowledge of its truth. That's the only way. David said that the word of God is a light and a lamp that lights his path before him and shows him where to place his feet on it. Psalm 119, 105. The word of God keeps him from stumbling in the dark and keeps him from wandering off the path, of course, of life. You know, right now in our world that is so darkened by sin and I would say just utter confusion, it can be a little difficult to know where to plant your feet because it seems everywhere you turn in our culture and society, you're just gonna step in it. You know what I'm saying? There's trouble on the right hand, there's trouble on the left. That would be the other way. That's why my kids don't know their right hand from their left hand. <laughs> it's hard to know where to plant your feet, whose side to take, who to identify with, how to identify yourself, which, which pronouns to use, what is right and wrong. And Satan is right there to invade our thoughts, to confuse and to corrupt And with social media, he's never been so effective. So if you're new today, or if you haven't been listening in the past, um, if your children are on social media, please get them off. Please be a wise steward of their heart, okay? Get them off social media. They don't need a phone even, okay? They don't need anything with social media. If you need them to call you or text you, I, I don't think that's bad. Even though when I was 11, I was hiking through the hills of Wyoming with a shotgun, and I didn't have a phone, okay? I just told my mom I'd be back before dark, and I always came back, okay? There are phones out there that don't have internet. For my oldest son, who is 17, he has a Gab phone, and all it does is text and call, for the most part. He can't access the internet. Uh, you know, social media is more dangerous than meth, okay? I just cannot tell parents how important it is to keep their kids away from it. And you say, well, it's, it's too late now. We're all... No, it's not. Take it away and give it two weeks, okay? Just take it away. Do the right thing with your kids because social media is, it is terrible, okay? It's terrible. I can't think of any time in history when things have been so confusing and deceptive as they are right now with the things that are being advanced so quickly and so aggressively in our culture and it's drawing people in and it's destroying them. You know, since just before COVID, through COVID, and right now, we have so many things that we, we kind of knew about, but then suddenly they were just forced upon us. And we had to think them through. We, had to, we were confronted with them. You know, one of the things that wasn't super strong in our immediate uh, community was the critical race theory. And it's been presented to our culture as a way to reduce racism, but the very tenets of the theory are racist and divisive, pitting one race against another race. And if, if you think that's confusing in itself, what if people like me introduced it in my home, where I'm white and my wife is very brown, okay? And, and there was jokes floating around in my house, and, and we were sitting in the car one day, and, and we were kind of talking about this with our kids and trying to educate them and, and teach them what the scriptures say about race and all of that. And in addressing it in light of what is happening in the culture, and Malia, who, uh, she doesn't like me to talk about her from the pulpit, but she, she looked up at me and she goes, Daddy, you need to apologize to me. And it was just a joke. It was just a joke. But because I'm white, I need to apologize to those that are brown. But my kids are half, so do I just give a half apology to them? You know, it's so confusing. But as you've noticed, our culture has bit into it, hook, line, and sinker. And now we have... Colleges, institutions, 
police departments, governments, they're, they're spreading this stuff, and the more that they push it, the, what campuses are now finding is that the campus now is being more and more divided, and the, they're becoming more hateful toward one another. So it's this, this confusion where we, the, the devil presents something that looks good, but when you crack it open, it's poisonous. It's poisonous. You know, BLM began on the false premise that white people are the primary culprit behind killing black people, and that black people should be afraid to go into the streets. I heard Christian black people talking about this and saying they're afraid for their children. But the only reason they're afraid for their children now is because this doctrine has been pushed. But the vast majority of all black people are killed by black people. The vast majority. It's these, these lies that come across. And, and thank God BLM is now facing multiple lawsuits uh, for corruption, for scandals and embezzlement and the rest. It was founded on corruption and it continued that way. But I think probably one of the most corrupt ideas and dangerous that is spread through our culture is gender theory, is gender theory. It's important to understand that, you know, people did not struggle with their gender identity until the last few years. The number of people that went through what they call gender dysphoria was so small that it, it couldn't even come up on the radar. And as the fad has been spread, guess what, on what platform? Social media, okay? That's what has caused this to rise up and infect our young people. They even call it a social contagion. But it's far worse than that. It's a satanic contagion. Gender dysphoria didn't originate in the minds of individuals. It was planted there by an enemy. And now through social media, it's being sowed in masse. You know, people in other countries that have not been infected with, you know, Western gender theory, they're still quite comfortable in their biological gender, and they've never had a thought to the contrary. We've infected our culture with this, our young people especially. The Western culture has become the great inventor of evil things, but it's not an original thought. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. So we found a culture that was vulnerable to these kinds of ideas, just like he found Peter vulnerable to th this whole issue of Christ, and then pounced, capitalized on it. And this is the, the discussion in Romans chapter 1, where we see depravity begin here, and then it declines and declines and declines. And that's Romans chapter 1, verse 30. It's 30 verses into the map. It's into the section where it talks about, and they're filled with all unrighteousness. We're at that stage in our culture. So many people are caught up in so many things that lack value, that they have nothing to do, nothing better to do than corrupt themselves, because they're vulnerable to it. Our culture is a petri dish for mental illness and social maladies and victimhood. And it's not always easy to see through the confusion, especially if you're a young person and you're being indoctrinated by all of this stuff. And what we're seeing now is the population is being infected with all of these secular, satanic ideas. It's leaving a wake of destroyed lives, broken families, and a society that is without hope. If you've seen the statistics on depression, especially among women and young people, it's out of control now. And it's because of these things. And then strangely enough, the blame is placed in the lap of the church. It's, it's all our fault because we resist their moral insanity by showing them spiritual, moral, and biological realities. But, you know, the truth is God created us and our bodies in a certain way for a certain purpose. And only when our lives are used in accord with his design is there hope and fulfillment. It's the only way for stability. 
those advancing all of these profane doctrines teach that if you disagree, you are hateful and that your contrary views are violent. It's the strangest thing in the world that if, if I just disagree with you, I'm violent, but if you disagree with me, it's just fine. And I even say that to them. I say, why is it that when I disagree with you, I'm hateful and violent, but when you disagree with me, you're just right. It's a very strange world. It's so confusing. And now that they've so effectively indoctrinated our society, you can be punished for your disagreement. Do you see those two older men, 173, 180, uh, at a silent uh, protest, at a, they're pro-lifers at a Planned Parenthood. They were beaten. They were beaten. Silent protest. If you misgender someone by the use of proper grammar and biological realities, you can lose your job. You can be sued. After the transgender murdered all the people at the Presbyterian private school, many were saying that this is what happens when you come against the transgender community. They turn to violence in order to protect themselves. In other words, it's understandable what they did because you saying what you said was violent. It was all over the place. And then sadly, and this is what's so crazy, many who call themselves Christians have been sucked into this madness. And the reason is they could not discern between thoughts and ideas that were from hell and those that were from heaven. Like Peter, they could not tell the difference between the voice of God and the enemy of our soul, who Jesus says has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And he does so by the most deceptive means. And those Christians, entire denominations who fell into these things have been those that are most ignorant of the scriptures and those that have forsaken them. That's why they fell into this stuff. The only way to discern between heavenly ideas and those that come from the pit of hell is the word of God. We do not understand or realize how precious the word of God is and how it can spare us from a thousand miseries. In the moments leading up to Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion, he was praying for his people. Not praying for himself, really. But praying for his people, and he said this, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. I'm, I'm about to sign off through suffering and death. And Father, this is the one thing that I want you to do for my people. Sanctify them. Wash them with your truth. Your word is truth. As soon as Paul discovered that he was going to be executed for preaching Christ, he wrote to Timothy, he says, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He didn't write that yesterday. If he only knew, if he only knew. He says, but you, Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 17. Earlier, he said to Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you, 1 Timothy 4.16. When Paul was leaving Ephesus, never to return, he said to them, I commend you to God and to his word. There's nothing of more value that I can just leave with you, as I'll never see you again. God and his word, take it, use it. Every Sunday, every Thursday night, I commend you guys to God and to his word. Study it, 
know it, and live it. Only then will your mind be ready and protected from the confusion that is being sowed by the enemy that seeks to destroy our world, seeks to destroy our lives. Fathers, single mothers, whatever you do, whatever you do, bring your children up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Keep them, protect them from the moral insanity that's advancing in our world. They are vulnerable and they are no match for the enemy without that training, without that discipling. The battle for their souls is waging, it's unrelenting. And you guys, when the dust settles and everything is brought to an end, Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. They, they won't be changed. God's directive will never be altered. His view of reality is fixed. Amen? And the best thing we can do is to fix ourselves to it. We must. Go ahead and stand up. Let's pray. Well, Father, the reality is, is that because we have the full revelation of your word, if we are to, to make it our our food, our drink. As Moses said, this is your life. If we would give ourselves to it, Lord, we can spare ourselves so many miseries. We can identify deception. We can see truth. Or we can see right through the cloud of moral insanity that our world is in right now. And then we can be a light. Lord, I pray for all of the the parents in the room that, Lord, you would give them just a strong conviction that they first must know the word and that as they study it and learn it, Lord, they would be communicating that to their children in order to arm them, to protect them, to prepare them so that they can negotiate and navigate this mess of a world and that rather than just always being vulnerable, Lord, they would have the armor of God to, to advance the gospel. Lord, give us strength, give us wisdom. Help us not to fall victim Help us to clearly be able to discern the thoughts from heaven versus the thoughts from hell. Lord, give us strength, I pray. Lord, thank you that you've revealed to us that our enemy is real, that he's, he's finely tuned his skills. But Lord, if we do have your word on our hearts and minds, we can stand. As Paul says, doing all that you can, stand, having armed ourselves. So Lord, thank you, and um, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.